Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with expert series. I'm Dorian Mincer owner of Revolutionized Retirement and your host for these interviews. And today my guest is Chip Conley, and I'm going to tell you a little about him in just a couple of minutes, and we'll get going. And I know these are really difficult times, and I'm so glad all of you are here, and we'll, I think, integrate some of some of the impact of the difficult times we're in on the call today, too, because, you know, we're living in the world and not in a vacuum. And I think the topic today actually lends itself to that. So let me just tell you first a little about Chip. Chip Conley is a New York Times bestselling author and the hospitality maverick who helped Airbnb's founder turn their fast-growing tech startup into a global hospitality brand. Hospitality brand, sorry. In Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, he shares his unexpected journey at midlife. From CEO to intern, learning about technology as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy, while also mentoring CEO Brian Chesky. Chip's the founder of the Modern Elder Academy, where a new roadmap for midlife is offered at a beautiful oceanfront campus in Baja, California, Sur, Mexico. He serves on the board of Encore.org and the advisory board for the Stanford Center for Longevity. And Chip is uh, calling in now from Baja, So, and we've asked him to just talk as loud as he can because it's not the ter- most terrific connection. And I must say, I really recommend his book. It just so resonates. Those of you who've been, you know, who know my work and have been following our Fourth Tuesday, I mean, his work totally resonates with me, and it's it's so nicely written with stories about him and other people and questions to ponder. So I tr- truly, truly recommend that you that you read the book. And at the end, I'm going to make sure that Chip gives you information of knowing how to get in touch um, with him, you know, to learn about the Modern Elder Academy and to learn more about the Academy as well as how to get a copy of the book. But the one lucky person today who asks the best question as judged by me will get a copy of the book. So without further ado, Chip, why don't we start a little about what led you to write the book? And let's start there. And I, I, you know, you mentioned when you got on that we can, you know, sort of switch the questions around and all and, and really deal with sort of the impact now, because I know, you know, some of your work with Airbnb, I'm sort of interested in, you know, now that I know Airbnb is one of the companies really having such a hard time with this pandemic. Yeah. We'll get to that a little bit later in the call. But what led you to writing this this book and sort of getting interested in this area? Well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you, and uh, I really appreciate your work, and it's great to connect with your community. I will do my best to speak loudly without sounding like I'm shouting at people. I, long story short is I started a company at age 26, a boutique hotel company uh, called Vishwada Vive, and I ran it for 24 years. And uh, it was one of the first boutique hoteliers in the United States, and we created the second largest boutique hotel company in the United States. And then I sold it at the bottom of the Great Recession. And I really wasn't sure what was next for me. There's a, a great quote from... Robert De Niro in the movie The Intern. Did you like that movie? <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah. Yes. Um, the, the, there's a quote from him that says, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. And mm-hmm. so I knew I had music inside of me. I just didn't know who to share it with. And that's about the time that the three young founders of Airbnb approached me, and I I didn't really know much about Airbnb. This was more than seven years ago, and it was a small tech startup uh, in San Francisco. And, of course, I lived in San Francisco, and I had a long history of being a hotelier in San Francisco, and they realized they were trying to disrupt an industry they didn't really understand. <laughs> and so I started spending more time with them, and Brian, the CEO and uh, co-founder, asked if I could be his mentor 
Long story short is I became the head of global hospitality and strategy and helping them to steer their rocket ship as it was growing. And about three months into the job, Brian said to me, Brian, the CEO, said to me, who's, by the way, 21 years younger than me, he said, Chip, we hired you for your knowledge, but what we really got was your wisdom. You are a modern elder. And I was like, really? I don't know if I want to be a modern elder. <laughs> I was 52 years old at the time. I'm 59 now. And, but I started to realize that what he meant was I was someone who was as curious as he, as he was wise. And that's how he defined the modern elder, as opposed to the elder of the past, which he thought was like the person who had all the wisdom but wasn't necessarily curious about how the world's always changing so much. And so that's really how I started to imagine what does it mean to be a modern elder. And I spent another four years full-time at, at Airbnb and then three years, more than three years now as a, an advisor to the founders. But when I left four years or three years ago to no longer be in a, in a day-to-day role in the company, it gave me the time and space to write the book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. That's, excuse me. That so So how did you deal with some of your fears of just sort of jumping into that and, you know, and being predominantly with millennials at that this time in your life? You know, I was, it was a very um, unusual time in the sense that I joined the company because they wanted my knowledge. And then after the first week, I almost quit because I realized I had never worked in a tech company before. So I didn't understand the lingo of tech nor the lingo of millennials. And so I was in a place where I felt like, wow, this is not my perfect habitat. I'm not used to this. But instead of actually feeling like I had to know it all or like I had to pretend that I knew it all, instead I decided, you know what? What if I was supposed to be occasionally the intern as well as the mentor? So that allowed me to be curious and ask lots and lots of questions. And as my father said to me, we were going on a hike about a month after I joined the Airbnb, and I was telling him I was thinking about quitting. And he said, well, what, how, what if you could turn your fear into curiosity? And just be the most curious person in the room. You won't be the smartest person in the room because Airbnb is full of some of the most brilliant technologists in the world. But you could be the most wise person in the world on some subjects and the most curious person on other subjects. And once I heard that from my dad, I was like, yeah, that's, I will do that. I'll be going to be curious, and I'm going to be wise. I'm going to know when is the right time to be curious and when is the right time to be wise. And what the younger people really appreciated, and I was twice the age of the average employee in the company, what they really appreciated was here's this person who, you know, in the era today, we might call them the, the OK Boomer. Here's this Boomer. And we're used to having boomers tell us how the world works and not listen to us. And all of a sudden, here's a person who's come along who is very open to learning. In fact, he, he may be more open to learning than I am, and I'm half his age. So I think what it helps people to see is that not all, all older people are of the mindset that they know it all. And in fact, that we, are, we can have a beginner's mind and be curious about what it is that we want to learn that we don't know yet. Yeah, I love that, and I, I had earmarked that in the in your book, actually. You know, when you talked about learning to marry wisdom and experience with curiosity, a beginner's mind, and a willing willingness to evolve. I really like that that kind of concept of it, and that you know that if well, it sort of ties into what you talk. Maybe well, you know, you mentioned about a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And I think you're you're sort of talking about having this growth mindset. Can you maybe tell the listeners a little of how you distinguish and how you define both the fixed mindset and why it's so important to begin to have a growth mindset as we think about being a modern elder? Yes. In fact, this is a conversation I had very early on with Brian Chesky, young founder, co-founder and CEO. I said, you know, we want to set your company up so that it has a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. And he asked me, well, tell me more about that. And I told him about <clears throat> the psychologist Carol Dweck uh, from Stanford who popularized this idea. So if you have a fixed mindset, it means that you look at the world as if tr- you're trying to always prove yourself. 
and winning or success for yourself is winning. So if you if success is winning and you want to prove yourself, you don't like to do things that you're not good at or you haven't tried before. As you get older, what that means is your sandbox you're playing in gets smaller and smaller because if success is defined by winning, over time, especially when it comes to physical exertion, your body and things like that, you end up becoming a little bit, you know, you just you, you basically create a smaller life because you aren't willing to try new things. The opposite of that is a growth mindset. And when you have a growth mindset, you're not trying to prove yourself, you're trying to improve yourself. And you're not focused on winning and success being winning, success is learning. And if success is learning, what that means is you're open to trying new things. And so I think one of the things we need to learn about midlife and beyond is in many cases people have a tendency to think that, okay, well, I, you know, I have a fixed mindset in my life because if I don't have a fixed mindset, I'm going to look stupid or I am going to embarrass myself or I'm going to get myself in trouble. And and so all that fear creeps in. And I understand it. And I'm, I'm not suggesting here people should be doing things that, they, that feel completely unsafe. You don't have to skydive at age 85. But what I will say is that the mindset that goes with this is particularly predominant. Because if you take a fixed mindset toward your physical exertion and then you start applying it, applying it to your learning or toward your willingness to meet new people or your openness to new concepts, you create a smaller and smaller world. And I think that one of the things that many people forget about is how much, how, what percentage of their adult life is still ahead of them. I, I just turned 59 a few months ago, but I, and I've been predicted based on a few different online websites and my doctor saying, I might live till age 98. Let's say I do. So I live till age 98 and I just turned 59. Well, I have just entered the second half of my adult life if we start counting at age 18. Because from 18 to 98 is 80 years, and so halfway through would be 58. Well, if more, more and more of us actually thought about that and asked ourselves the question, what percentage of my adult life is still ahead of me, we might be willing to have more of a growth mindset and try new things. Which is, I think, such an exciting concept to have. And But I, I wonder, kind of given what's going on in the world, I want to kind of come back and forth to sort of this pandemic. Do you think that it's going to make it harder for for people who are in the second half of life with the way, you know, people are now sort of shut in now and the economy's changing and we don't know what's going to happen to companies afterwards? I wonder if you can no speak doubt. to that a little. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt that we're, gonna, we're moving into an era of fear and anxiety, and for good reason. I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss it because I, um, we've never seen anything in our lives like this, and the world's never seen something that, that moved as quickly as it did. So the suddenness of it is unlike anything the world's seen before because we're a more connected world today. On the other hand, it's a perfect time to to try to adopt a growth mindset because if you take all of the knowledge and experience you've had from the past and try to apply it to something that's absolutely new that none of us have experienced before, it may mean that your past experience doesn't necessarily relate. And so it does require a little bit more of an openness. I, I do think it's a beautiful opportunity for people to spend more time online, whether that's connecting with each other on uh, video calls or doing deep dives into subjects that are interesting to them. You know, one of my favorite modern elders of all time was a guy named Peter Drucker. And he is one of the, he's really the person who popularized the idea of management theory in business. He lived till age 95. He, he wrote 40 books, of which two-thirds of them he wrote after the age of 65. And one of the things that he was very thoughtful about is every two years, he would choose a new subject that had nothing to do with his career that he was intrigued by, whether that was Japanese flower arranging or medieval war strategy. And he would spend the next two years becoming one of the experts in the world on that subject. So what if you were to imagine a subject that's really intriguing to you, but you haven't given yourself the time or energy to explore it further? I mean. Maybe it's, you know, understanding emotions more deeply or understanding Swedish culture if you, if you have a Swedish background 
or understanding the politics of, you know, the era that Abe Lincoln lived to, which was, you know, the Civil War is an era that may have a lot of comparability to what we're going through right now. You could go and spend some time to actually become an expert on this. And that level of curiosity uh, that you're taking to that new subject is a, almost like a lubricant for your mind and your heart and your soul. And I, I think it's the true elixir of life that actually is youth affirming because lifelong learning makes us feel younger. Mm-hmm. Great point. I mean, now is such a good time to be able to, to think about doing those kind of things of thinking about things that got put on that back burner or people that inspire us and as you were mentioning Peter Drucker and you know sort of just thinking about things that that you've never had time to do that now now there's an opportunity to do while we're staying at home and can be learning maybe becoming more comfortable with the technology involved in it so you know, back to your role at Airbnb because I think it just set such a it just was a sort of an important turning point in your life. You had many roles there, and and you talk about the the sort of intergenerational learning, you learning from the millennials, and them learning from you, and also the concept of kind of internship. Can you talk some about that? Yes. So it was very clear pretty quickly that there were certain areas where I could be you know, an appropriate mentor. And then there were other areas where I needed to be an intern. I needed to learn from others. And what we learned pretty quickly between Brian and me, Brian, my boss, the CEO, is that we could create a mutual mentorship relationship, or what I've also coined as the term become a mentor, which means you're a mentor and an intern at the same time. So in in the case of Brian and many others, it was often I was learning DQ from them, like not Gary Queen, <laughs> DQ as in digital intelligence, and they were learning EQ for me, emotional intelligence, because actually emotional intelligence is a quality that, on average, you get better at. I mean, the average person gets better at as as they get older, because you have pattern recognition of understanding yourself and others. And so, in many ways, the, the kinds of relationships I built with younger people were had a lot to do with me offering leadership advice, skills around understanding people, self-awareness skills, mindfulness skills of how, how to how to use meditation, breathing, and other kinds of things as a way to settle your system down. You know, one of the things that's true of people as they get older is they moderate their emotions more effectively. Not everybody. I'm sure you can think of people you know, maybe yourself, <laughs> who is so good at that. <laughs> but, but the average person, as they get older, does become a little bit more emotionally moderate. Um, also, one of the things that a lot of people don't know uh, is the U-curve of happiness. The U-curve of happiness has shown that after about age 45 to 50, on average, uh, people get happier with each passing decade. So you're happier in your 50s and 40s, happier in your 60s and 50s, happier in your 70s and 60s. And women happier in their 80s than their 70s even. And so what's interesting about all this is these are, these are in essence life coping skills that we've learned over the course of time. And some of those skills were absolutely valuable in a very high-pressure, high-tech environment like Airbnb. And so, as Brian said, they hired me for my knowledge, which was basically, you know, how to run a company and and understanding hospitality. But ultimately, they had me set up all kinds of things in the company because they they appreciated my wisdom, including a learning and development program that allowed a 28-year-old manager to know how to actually properly manage the 24-year-old director port of theirs. So what do you think enabled Airbnb to be so forward-looking? I'm asking because I have a couple of questions I'll integrate now. One is from Mims from Toronto who says, who asks, how do we get employers to become more age-friendly? And the, the other Great. comment is that the U.K. seems to be doing a better job than the U.S. or than we. So I, it may be the U.S. and Canada since she, this person is in Canada. Can you 
and, and then another question from Pamela from North Carolina is, I've worked with many clients who've experienced ageism at work. Do you have a message for employers about the value of older workers in a multi-generational workforce? I think both of those questions relate to, you know, what what do you think enabled Airbnb to be so forward-looking, and how how does one try to educate other employers to be more age-friendly? So it's a great question. Let me first address the Airbnb part of it and then address the ageism part of it and how do we, and and also, you know, where the U.S. is on this. So I, when it comes to Airbnb, I, I, I was fortunate. The young CEO, when he was star 52, he was 31 at the time that we first met Brian. And he had a point of view, which was, I don't know much. <laughs> he says, I know a few things well, uh, but I, I've never started a company before, and I don't know anything about hospitality, and et cetera, et cetera. And he said, instead of trying to prove that I am like a, a fast learner on these things, which I would do my best on, I would like to surround myself with people I can learn from. And so that's an unusual stance, because in many ways, the young tech leaders in Silicon Valley are are almost rewarded for their hubris. It's like the more confident they are, the more money venture capitalists give them. And if you show, and if they show some level of humility, there's some sense that there's something wrong with them. Well, Brian, Brian can be both humble and confident at the same time. And so, long story short, is he just felt that he and his two co-founders really needed to find more senior people to help support them because the company was growing so quickly. Now, that was not true in the early days. Let's be clear. In the early days, the first five, first three years of Airbnb's life, you know, the average age in the company was very young, and there was almost nobody over the age of 40, almost nobody, until about 2011, and the company started in 2008. But it really didn't start in any measurable way until 2009. So it was almost, almost exclusively millennials. And But he got smart, and he realized, you know what? We, we need some other people to give us some different perspectives. So what Brian said is like, we're very good as a society about understanding we need diversity in the workplace, but the diversity has been focused on on gender, race, and sexual orientation, and maybe disability issues, but not around age. And so he had that new, you know, a really new perspective on that. So I was fortunate, and I probably wouldn't have joined the company if I didn't feel like the company had an age-friendly stance. The other thing that's interesting about, you know, about Airbnb is that the fastest-growing set of hosts and guests in the world were people 50 and older. So if you have a company that's run by 26-year-olds, or in Brian's case, 31, and your fastest-growing segment of customers is people 50 and older, you better have some people at the table who understands the mentality of someone 50 and older. So that's an important thing. Now, secondly, in terms of the subject of ageism and, and uh, you know, what's going on in the U.S. versus, say, U.K. or U.S. and Canada and U.K., um, in my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, Chapter 9 of that book is written for the HR departments of the world, yes, because it's a chapter that says, here are my 10 top recommendations for creating a more age-friendly workplace. I've been lucky enough to be able to give keynote speeches at the largest HR conferences in the world, and I'm seeing an increasing number of companies that are looking at this because there's some studies out of Germany that have shown that of all the kinds of diversity you can have on teams, age diversity is actually the most effective form of diversity, which is interesting. Now, all forms of diversity are positive generally, as long as they're handled well. Um, so diversity is a good thing, but age diversity has a particularly unique thing, which is that when you have an, an older person or two or three on a team, or, frankly, let's talk about the opposite of this. You have an older company full of older people, and you can use some younger people. So age diversity does the following. It allows for some cognitive diversity because the older brain and the younger brain operate somewhat differently. And I can talk more about that if you want me to. But for right now, let me just summarize by saying more and more companies are seeing the value of age diversity. Now, that is not true. That's also been true because the economy in the United States has been so strong with a 3.5% unemployment rate. You know, there was a sense like more and more employers were saying, how can we find more employees, you know, in, in a market where the labor force is, is pretty tight? Now, that's going to change pretty much overnight with, with the pandemic. 
And so we'll see what happens. Um, and in fact, there may be even a fear about older workers in the mm -hmm. workplace because they're more vulnerable to the pandemic uh, and, and to the virus. So we'll see. In the short term, it's, it's just a mess. Let's just start with that. Uh, and we may go from a 3.5% unemployment, unemployment rate to a 20% unemployment rate almost overnight. But what I would say is, in terms of culturally, the UK has taken some forward steps in the last two or three years. They created the Minister of Loneliness, although that person, that person and their department was not exclusively focused on older loneliness. It was also focused on lonely, lonely, lone, younger loneliness as well. The primary focus was on uh, older people and loneliness, and the epidemic of loneliness it can actually also lead to death by despair, people finding ways to, to you know, to kill themselves, not just through suicide, but just through bad behaviors. And so I think the UK has been a little bit further ahead on that subject. The US, I'll just say, all I can talk about, I can't talk about Canada, although I've, I've given a number of speeches in Canada, and there's an organization called Boomers Plus in Canada that sponsored this, uh, a talk I gave there, and that, that organization focuses on placing older workers in companies. So if you want to look at for Boomer, Boomer, Boomers Plus in they're based in Toronto. But I think in the U.S. there's a, there's a cult of, you know, youth. It's that, you know, the, the country has always had a point of view of, like, go west, young man, and, and young woman, and young person. There's an element of, like, our future is ahead of us, and therefore, if our future is ahead of us, we're not so interested in the past. And so I think that the U.S. has a, a particularly unique cultural frame, you know, evangelizing youth. Whereas other cultures, whether it's Japan or Italy, two the two oldest cultures in the world, have a, a culture that is much more multi-generational and has much more of a sense of respecting the elders. I, I don't think the respecting the elders is something the U.S. is going to come back to, but I do think moving from a place where elders are regarded with reverence, moving to them thinking thinking of elders as being uh, relevant, going from reverence to relevance requires the elder, the person who's, let's say, 45 or 50 years old or older, to be able to be open to learning new things. Because you're only relevant if you can actually take your wisdom and apply it in the context of what's needed. Which is, I think, so important to keep in mind and, and maybe tied into that this is a time to also, you know, kind of analyze where the, maybe your gaps are so that you can, you know, during this time we have with this forced isolation of learning some of these skills so that you can become even more marketable. But I do I do worry about the fallout after this pandemic of, you know, if we're going to get more and more ageism of just seeing older people as more vulnerable. And we've come, I, I think, you know, it's it's been this push forward of trying to help focus on longevity and vitality and, you know, all the kind of breaking the myths of being older. And I, I, I do worry that, that it's going to be a regression, you know, back to some of these earlier negative attitudes about older people. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a very relevant here. I, I agree. I think in the short term, it'll, 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 it'll be there. I think what, what that means is, Frankly, it's, it's healthy for us to keep our distance from each other right now. There will come a point when it's where everybody ha is given a little bit more latitude to be not have social distancing. And I think older people then still have to use social distancing probably for a period of time in order to make sure that they're safe. We will get on the other side of this pandemic, and whether that's right. three months from now or three years from now is the question. And I think, you know, it's more likely... It's, you know, 2021, and, you know, the balance of this year is going to be a, just a, a rough time. And if that's true, then, you know, we just have to sort of know that there's value. Here's the part that I think is really interesting. As long as you can understand how to operate Zoom, Skype, Google Hangout, whatever the form is, and then most people use Zoom these days, if you can figure out how to make, operate that, and you can actually use good Zoom etiquette, use <laughs> good video mm -hmm. etiquette, and I, I wrote a, a Wisdom Well daily blog post. So I have a, a daily blog called Wisdom Well on the Modern Elder Academy website, or you can just look, you know, chip comment Wisdom Well, and I bet uh, Google will take you to it. I wrote something last week called Who's Zooming Who, and it's an etiquette around Zoom protocols or video protocols. Here's the good news about an older person 
in the era of everybody doing video calls. Assuming you can operate it, no one is worried about you in terms of you spreading something to them, them spreading something to you, and you have just as much of an ability to be sitting at the table as everybody else. Everybody's social distancing right now, not everybody, but most people are. And therefore, for the foreseeable future, you're at that table. It's, it's, it's beyond that point of social distancing when there's to be some worries. But, you know, don't, don't worry about that yet. Instead, focus on how you can be at the table. The question is who are you at the table with? The hard part is if you're, uh, let's say you're 60 years old or 65 years old and you're, or 70 years old and you're not ready to, to hang, you know, to hang up your work, you know, boots and you, you still want to work. I, I do think the hardest thing for anybody right now, if they're older, is going to be trying to find a job if you don't have one right now because if you go from 3.5% unemployment rate to the prediction of 20% over the course of about three months, which is what they're predicting, that is, <laughs> this is not a, an economy where people are looking at people. On the other hand, here's one thing I will say, is I think customer service, online customer service and phone customer service is going to have a huge growth. And I think one of the things that I know about older people is they have a cordiality and they understand manners and they understand respect of how to respect others in a way that younger people haven't necessarily learned sometimes. So I, I think there will be some great opportunities for people in, in that world. And in fact, Amazon does that, has been doing this for years. Amazon, as we go into the holidays, they do a huge amount of hiring of, people, of older people. In fact, they, they go out and promote it to at senior centers and at, at RV, you know, parks and things like that because during the holidays they do huge hiring of older people for customer service. I, I, I think it's such an important point to um, underscore of both the in-person down the road of customer service as well as the online. And, and I think, you know, people just needing to get creative about sort of project work or, or different temporary kind of things that, that people are able to do. But, but I think you're absolutely right that probably in the period of time post-pandemic, older workers may, you know, maybe at a harder point because unemployment is going to be so high. But I wanted to get back to something you mentioned earlier that you said you'd talk a little bit more about if we wanted, and I think it would be helpful. Your sense of the differences in the older brains and the younger brains and how they operate? Ah, Can you speak to that? (laughs) It's one of my favorite subjects because it doesn't get a lot of mainstream attention. So what what we know in the mainstream is the following, is that as we get older, our memory is not quite as good and our ability to, to respond to something is slows down a little bit, which is actually in some ways a good thing emotionally because these were less reactive. But the fact is a younger brain is more focused and faster. Focus and fast. That's a young brain. And focus and fast is a very good thing. I mean, if you're <clears throat> if you're driving on some kind of off-road vehicle race, you want a young, you know, young, fast, focused brain. But the thing that a lot of people don't know, and it's now been proven and it's really written quite well by doctors, is that as we get older, our brain shrinks slightly, but we start to learn the left brain, right brain tango. And what does that mean? It means that we actually are more uh, adept and nimble at moving from the logical left brain to the lyrical right brain. And by doing so, it means that we actually can think more holistically, systemically, and we can connect the dots. And so this is one of the things that Brian said to me after two months of joining Airbnb. He said, I love the way your brain works, Chip. You, you, you're able to zoom out and see the big picture much better than we can when you be in charge of strategy for the company. And of course, initially I was not. Over the course of the first few months, I got, I turned out, turned out I was in charge of seven things. I was supposed to be just one. But the, the strategy was not like, wow, you want me to be head of strategy of a tech company and I've never worked at a tech company. He says it doesn't matter that you haven't worked in a tech company. Your mind thinks like systemically and you can sort of see around the corner of what's going to happen next. And again, that's really, that, that is the nature of an older brain. Being able to see pattern recognition, wisdom is really pattern recognition. You can sort of predict the future because you have some intuition from the past. There's that, and then there's also the fact that you can actually think more broadly beyond just what's directly in front of your face, and that's actually particularly valuable, especially when you're thinking of teams and who's not in the room right now, who needs their, their voice you know, to be brought up in the room. 
meaning like you're making decisions as a company, especially in a time like now when companies are having to make very difficult decisions, the most important question any leader should be asking right now is who is not in the room right now as we're making a very important decision and how are we going to represent that point of view? And, and a younger person doesn't ask that question very often. An older person is more willing to do that because they can sort of see the fact that there are blind spots here. I hope that makes sense. But it, what it says is like, wow, an older brain has something to bring to the table that a younger brain doesn't. And there's also studies that have shown the following. If you create three, three kinds of teams, a team only with young people on it, a team only with old people on it, and then a team that's mixed age-wise, what you find is the following if you're trying to solve problems. The young team solves problems quickly and makes lots of mistakes. <laughs> the older team, when it's exclusively older people, takes a longer time to make decisions but makes fewer mistakes. The best of both worlds in terms of making fast decisions and less mistakes was a mixed-age team because they got almost like an intergenerational potluck. Um, each generation brought what they could, you know, what, what they did best to the table. It is interesting of trying to think how companies will, uh, both how employers kind of can think about this, but also how we as the employee, potential employee or the older worker, mature, modern elder can fight our own sort of internal ageism <laughs> so we can believe oh, sure. that you know, that, that, that we're capable of all these things that you're mentioning. I know you spend a lot of time in the book talking about sort of some of the myths of ageism and how to combat it. Can you talk a little about that? And then I'm going to integrate some more questions from people because there's some good questions and comments here. But can you talk more about the, the way our own ageism can work against us? Yeah. No, there's no doubt. I mean, it, one form one form of our own ageism is that is what I talked about earlier, which is the idea of a fixed mindset. If you mm-hmm. if you believe that you can't learn anymore, and if you believe that you know you're fixed in your opinion, you're right. You will be you 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 will have you'll be ageist in the sense that you won't feel like you can adapt very well. People who do well in the in the modern world are people who are adaptable and resilient. And so if you doubt your adaptability or your resilience, you are sort of going at odds with the way the world works today and certainly and certainly the way the, the business world uh, or, or organizational world works. So there's that. I think one of the things that's um, really valuable, part of the reason we created the Modern Elder Academy, which I know we'll talk about in a few minutes, is the idea that we wanted to help, to help people to shift their mindset on aging. There's a woman named Becca Levy, professor at Yale, who's shown uh, in a series of studies that when people change their mindset from a negative or neutral perspective on their own aging to a positive perspective, they add seven and a half years to their life, all, 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 all other variables being uh, equal. And so seven and a half years of additional life, uh, and not only seven and a half years, uh, but also good years because you have a good perspective on your life. That's actually more added years than if you actually quit smoking in midlife or started mm-hmm. exercising in midlife. So this is a public health opportunity is to realize that when you shift your perspective on aging, I have some wisdom, I have some mastery. I've, I've you know, I've got some, I've got something to offer the world. What we like to call same seed, different soil meaning I have a knowledge of, in this particular industry that I've developed, but my knowledge, some of it's quite transferable to a variety of other industries. The problem we have as a culture is we're very good at helping people in their teens and 20s understand their skills, their strengths, things like that. But when we hit your 40s or 50s, we almost stop giving people the kinds of guidance and schools and tools for people to understand what they have to offer, or even more importantly, how to cultivate and harvest the wisdom that they have. That is why we created the World's First Midlife Wisdom School, the Modern Elder Academy, because we need to help people to understand that there are some unexpected pleasures of aging and there's some huge value that you have out there in the workplace that, frankly, if you don't, if you don't see it yourself, other people won't see it either. Maybe that lends to, to before I integrate some of these other questions, to talk a little more about what are some of the ways 
that you at your Modern Elder Academy try to help people reframe you know, the lifetime of experiences and redefine their midlife and navigate their expectations of themselves so they become more resilient and adaptable. How? What are some of the approaches and techniques that you offer to people there? Great. So we have uh, the, the book, um, which serves as sort of the framework for the program. The program is a one-week program here at our four-acre campus on the beach, one hour north of Cabo San Lucas, which is in the southern part of the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. It's a very safe part of Mexico, which is good news, and it is right on the ocean with desert and tropical and farmland all around us. So people arrive on a Sunday and they leave on a Sunday. And the framework we use from the book is the four key steps to becoming a modern elder in the book, which I learned from personal experience, but then I went out and interviewed 150 people who I felt like showed the evidence of being a modern elder, and it helped me to, to discern that these four steps are the key. Number one is you have to evolve. Anybody who's not evolving means that they're just static, and if you're static, you're in the process of dying. And to evolve means you need to understand how to do what I call the great midlife edit, and I define midlife, by the way, as 35 to 75, which is a very broad swath of your life. It's a bit of a marathon. And so if the great midlife edit, it's not something you just do once in your life, you probably have to do it multiple times, is when you actually realize what is no longer serving you, whether it's your responsibilities or your mindset, your identities, how you see yourself, your ways of being, your habits, the people in your life. Many people have things in their life that aren't serving them anymore, but they have a hard time being willing to edit it from their life. And so the first step we do on the first day, first full day together, is what the Evolve step that has a great midlife edit part to it. And it's really helping people to understand it's okay to be in the process of pruning branches in your life because the first half of your life is really about accumulating and the second half is about editing. The second lesson is about learning and, and helping people to feel comfortable with a growth mindset helping them feel comfortable about actually learning something new and being open to being what's called liminal. To be liminal is to be in transition, and any time you're going to try something new, you're going to be in that transition state, especially in the early days. The third step and stage is collaboration, and what we teach a lot of different exercises, much of it experiential, for people to understand how to be a better collaborator. You know, Google was able to study all of their teams around the world, and they found that the number one variable for effective teams in, the, in Google, Google as a company was creating psychological safety on the team. And what they found was that, generally speaking, older people on a team helps create psychological safety for the team. So we have skills of knowing how to collaborate, and uh, frankly, younger people need those skills. And so it, it's that's the third step, and then the fourth step is counsel, which is basically it comes down to the idea of how can I be a great advisor to other people, including younger people. The part that's interesting is that for many people who are older, they go to that fourth stage first. They say, oh, mm-hmm. this is the way the world works. Um, and people feel like, younger people feel like they're, they're being preached to about the way the way, you know, way, the way this person's experience has been, this older person's experience has been, and 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 they sort of turn off to that because it sounds like the, the person's a preacher or a parent, and so that you go to you go to counsel and advice at the point you've done the other three things first, and so that is the arc of learning. It's you know a 99th percentile in terms of customer satisfaction for the 800 people who've gone through the program from 24 countries. Average age 53, over 60% of them women, 25% people of color. We actually have scholarships um, that are available for over half of the people who come. So it's been a very popular thing. We're closed for March and April, that's for sure, and we may be closed for the rest of our academic season this spring. We'll see, depending upon, you know, what, what we hear on the virus. Right. With that in mind, just tying in, because one of the things that I also kind of earmarked in the book that I really like is your, you talk a little about this archaeological dig, you know, where you have people sort of answer the same question five times. I wonder if you could just Mm. share that with our listeners, you know, kind of what the question is and why five times, and then I really will integrate these other questions that are all here. Okay. So let me, 
so the so the, the actually at the academy in the book I say I have one question and then at the academy I have three and I think all three are worth. Oh, finished. okay. I just know and the one from the book since I've never. Yeah, I'll just be brief, but the the, the, the no, same format for all, all three. Look, the question in the book is what business are you in? And this is a question that Peter Drucker said is the most important question any organizational leader could ask: is what business are you in? And the reason we ask that question. Um, is because by the, the way you do it is you, you have two people sitting side by side and or sitting face to face, and one of them asks the question, what business are you or are we in? And the, and the person is answering, answers the question, and then the person asking says thank you and asks the question again, what business are we in? And, and you can't answer this, this the same way twice. And so by the time you get to the fifth question, you've really gotten to an archaeological dig of understanding, like, what's the essence of the differentiator to make sure organization different. Now, what makes the second and third questions more valuable, I think, is because they're more personal as opposed to organizational. So the second question is, what mastery do you offer? And so because that's more specific and personal to what you have to offer. And then the third question is, what mastery can you offer, which is pretty much the same, but the difference between what mastery do you offer and what mastery can you offer mm. is, do you offer is, is current day, and can you offer it in the future um, based upon what you may have to offer? What you have as talent and skill, what could you offer in the future? So long story short is all three of these give people the opportunity to understand underneath, you know, the superficial. Like, you know, when we, when we applied this idea at Airbnb of what business are we in, you know, we were in the home sharing business, but by the time we got to the fifth question of what business are we in, we realized we were in the belong anywhere business. And being in the belong anywhere business is very specific to Airbnb, whereas in the home sharing business, there's a lot of companies that could be in the home sharing business. So what it helped us to do was to understand underneath all of the superficiality of our lives, what is it that makes us different and what's at the essence of who we are. And I think when people can do that in and then apply that to their mastery as well, they understand some of the gifts that they have to offer the world. Which is what I think the underlying issue really is. And there was another quote that I, I'll find it, but it, the, the beauty of, what was it? it was, I'm not going to get the quote right, but that people see us age in public, but it's the grit and the gifts and the kind of getting in touch with our inner core that happens in private. That's not the exact quote, but but I loved that concept that you that you offer in the book. But going now to the questions from other people here. Faye from New York says, Chip, if you if you just if you would decide to take a three to six month sabbatical after or during this pandemic and become an quote independent scholar of life and creative elderine what topics would you study? Yeah, and then she goes on further. Let me just read the rest of it, but then you can respond. And would you please write another book sharing what you learned about this experience and deliver another TED talk? Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well. <laughs> So I've been lucky enough to give two TED Talks, and, you know, I, I, I think I have another one starting to formulate in me right now. So I would, you know, what's interesting is down here in the academy right now is empty because we are, you know, we're closed because of the pandemic, and hopefully it'll open in May or in June, but we'll see. I mean, what we have here is a library of 300 books all around the subject of aging or of subjects that are relevant to aging. And instead of organizing the library based upon subjects like philosophy or wisdom or, you know, mindfulness or healthy living, the library is organized based upon a question because what I believe is that as we get older, it's not about having all the answers, it's having the catalytic questions. So there's a whole section in, in the library about how can I evolve, focusing on transitions, because transitions are something that happens in your whole life. And we get better, hopefully get better at them as we get older. But there's a section on, on, you know, how can I, what are the unexpected pleasures of aging? So I would just say the answer I would give to her is I would probably spend, as I have the last week, a lot of time in the library picking out the books that I have always wanted to read or I have read in the past. Like there, there's, uh, there's some great old books by Marcus Aurelius and Cicero on aging and on, on, on building wisdom. And I would probably just spend more time reading these great books and making notes and trying to piece together how does this historical and timeless wisdom, 
have a relevancy in a period now because it's not like we're the first people who've had a pandemic or the first to have, you know, a, a world uh, a world war. In, in this case, the world war is on a virus. But you know, so people in the past have had to go through exceptional tragedies, and I think there's a lot to be learned from them. So I would sort of say, how, how do we forge a new kind of leadership during a turbulent time? Would be something I'd want to look at. It. Yeah. So that's kind of it. I think that is that, and then I think also from from the other part of it, I would say is is doing the deeper personal dive into understanding. I, I do believe that the first half of our life is the operating system that defines our era from adolescence to what is now called middle essence. Middle essence being the hormonal and emotional changes that we go through in between 45 and 60, and women. It's most evident for women with uh, menopause. So that. That era of adolescence to middleessence is defined by a primary operating system that's our ego. And the primary operating system for middleessence, which is basically the latter part of midlife and going into elderhood, not elderly, but elderhood, which is you know, maybe a 20 or 30 year era of your life, is one that's based upon your soul. So the primary operating system moves from your ego to your soul, and that's a huge shift. And I would, I, so if I, to answer the question, I would say I would and I will be, and in fact I have in my hand right now a book by Michael Mead called Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response in a, to a Troubled World. And he's a, you know, Michael Mead's sort of well-known, talking about elders uh, and a troubled world way before this uh, pandemic. So that's probably what I would do. Mm. Great, great advice. And I did find the, the actual quote that I want to read to give properly. Yeah. You say, and it happens to be on page 213 in your book, we age in public. Our true gifts are often private, deeply concealed in our heart and soul. So I think it ties in with what you were just saying about the awakening your soul. It sounds like a, a good book to to, to read. Yeah. All right, so let's see. Rosemary from Florida has a comment and then a question. So she says, as a 76-year-old, I started a nonprofit, Encore Palm Beach County, four years ago to help connect people over 50 with new work and volunteer opportunities. We found most of the people who came to our events needed work, so we developed a roster of programs to refer them to. Then we decided rather than telling employers why they should hire mature workers that we would recognize those uh, employers who were committed to hiring, retraining, and retaining mature workers. And they've developed a Wisdom and Experience Works for Business Awards event, and it's scheduled for June in cooperation with the Human Resource Association of Palm Beach Company. Their keynote speaker scheduled is Chris Farrell, who is a well-known speaker mm -hmm. on the issues, yep. and you know, Chris has been uh -huh. on, on this program two times, actually. She says, however, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to hold the event as scheduled. Do you have any suggestions on how we can stay on this focus given the change in the hiring situation? Hmm. Well, it, it, knowing that I think one of the big changes in the pandemic, the pandemic is going to make in the workplace is having more people work from home. and. That actually could be a positive for someone who's older in the sense like, you know, it, it, because generally speaking, being able to work from home and being sedentary and being open to like being in, in a home environment is not always a, a, the best for someone who's young and has a lot of energy and wants lots of visual stimulation and wants to sort of be out there in the world having lots of social contact. And so I would say, and I'm talking about long term, I think long term there's going to be a growing sense that companies are going to say, how do we hire people who are going to stay in place and work in, work from home and, and be a good collaborator from home? So I, I think one of the things, I don't have a solution for how to throw the event when, in fact, it's going to be hard in June to throw an event because I, I, I don't believe that, you know, by, by knowing that we haven't thrown a lot of events, you have to sort of pull the plug on an event, not the day before. But, you know, a few weeks before, otherwise you incur a bunch of costs. My guess is that the event won't go on as as planned, but you could potentially see if you could try to turn it into an online event. It could be interesting. Mm -hmm. But the bigger thing I think that actually could be worth exploring is doing a deep dive on with Google of how do you prepare workers for working at home in the future and which employers are going to be most interested in having home workers. I will tell you, Amazon is huge, is hugely interested in this. 
And there's an article in, in, in a major newspaper today, I can't remember which one, about the fact that Amazon's doing major hiring right now, especially with customer service workers. Another company that's doing things, you know, and Zappos, Zappos has much more of a younger focus. Zappos is owned by Amazon, and so they're, they're focused on this. Uh, and Zappos is, you know, an online company, but they have a very strong and really well-trained customer service function in the company. So long story short is I think that if people are comfortable with the idea of working longer, and, and then I think that there's a real opportunity here for older workers to to be in, in customer services. Now, one of the challenges with that is generally speaking, the pay for people who are doing at-home customer service work is not great. So let's just start with that. If you're somebody who's used to making $150,000 a year, and you're now going to make, you know, Twenty dollars an hour, you're not going to love that. But for a lot of people, they don't. That that's not their profile. Their profile is they've been, they when they're working full time, they're making seventy five thousand dollars, and now they want to work three days a week, and twenty dollars an hour or twenty five dollars an hour sounds perfectly fine. If you that's well, and for some people, it'll be like twelve dollars an hour, or fifteen dollars an hour. So, but you know what? When you can actually make your own rules, you don't have any costs for commuting, and and you can get some social interaction out of it by being at home. It's not a bad not a bad approach, especially if you can do it part time. Right, and I think more and more events. You know, people are really trying to work on how to how to get them online, and yeah. you know, Zoom platform. There are a number of other platforms where you can have you know multiple people. You know, at the same time. So I think that is something to look at. So Don Donald from Canada says, according to many social scientists, most people tend to overestimate their competence and capability, but underestimate the roles of luck, structural factors, and good timing how they play. This is one of the biggest lessons in wisdom I've learned over a long career. This awareness also makes me and my contemporaries more creative and generally more imaginative as we get older. Therefore, I still find that lesson invaluable. Somehow, though, I don't think that mindset, which accommodates real growth, would fly with most hiring managers. What are your thoughts? Gary, so wow, that was a very thoughtful question. <laughs> I don't feel like I get adequately. I'm going to give, I'm going to do something I, I, I rarely do, but I'm going to give all of your listeners my email address because you're welcome to email me directly. I would love to have him, uh, that was him, correct? I'd love to have him. Donald. Email me Donald. Donald. Yeah, Donald, yeah. email me directly and let's have a conversation about that because I feel like there's a back and forth necessary to get for me to give a, a proper answer on that. So my email address is chip at chipconley.com. Spelled C O N L E Y. Yeah, send me an email on that because that that's a I, to, to everybody else, what I would just say superficially answering that is Self-awareness around what you do well and what you don't do well and how you can continue to learn and how much luck <laughs> or circumstances had to do with your success versus you know, your own wisdom. I mean, I think the wisest people I know have the perfect alchemy of confidence and doubt. Those who think that they know it all or that they are fully gifted in everything they've ever gotten in their life, they got because of their own hard work, usually are not very wise. Uh, because what, what, wisdom really is of the mindset that you're not done. You're, your, be, your best years may be ahead of you in terms of learning. And so having some doubt about them is perfectly fine because actually if you're fully confident with zero doubt, you're usually in a place where you're not willing to learn a lot more. Mm. Great. Okay, it's going to move right along. I, and I appreciate your being able to stay a little bit longer. For those that have to leave, the, the code is for, from the Retirement Coaches Association is C-O-N-M-A-R-2-4. C-O-N-M-A-R-2-4. Okay, a few other questions here. Let's see. So Linda from San Luis Obispo from California has two questions. Can you speak about the concept of incubators for senior entrepreneurs who aspire to launch creative projects but find resources and money are an issue? Is there any such incubator out there? Most incubators focus on youth. She says, I'm in my mid-60s, and I'm a huge believer in lifelong and multi-generational learning. And then she adds, as a follow-up to the question about incubators, do you know of any mastermind groups for elders who know exactly what they want to do, but not especially how to actualize it? 
So, uh, gosh, I wish I wish we were open here at MEA. We just three weeks ago had a mastery week focused on people um, over 50 who wanted to start their own business. And in May, we had we were scheduled to have, and we still at this point are scheduled. And in, in if you go to the Modern Elder Academy website, you'll see you'll see it up there. Carrie Hannon, who's very well known as a she she she's teaching a workshop at the Modern Elder Academy on to be an entrepreneur. So we believe very much in the in the subject, the idea that sometimes the best time to become a small business owner or entrepreneur is after the age of fifty. And of course, the data on this is pretty conclusive in showing what percentage of the population are entrepreneurs over fifty. The to answer the question is that there is there are people again John Warner based in LA, so this person is not too far uh, from LA. Uh, and John John Warner has something called Silver Moonshine. It's, it's I think it's an incubator of older entrepreneurs. There's again Sean Garvey, both both Sean and and John Warner are MEA alums, Modern Elder Academy alums. Uh, Sean Garvey has an incubator in, in Northern California that is mostly younger people, but he actually is an older person and he tries to integrate older and younger people together. So that's another one to consider. AARP has an incubator in Washington for older entrepreneurs and a physical space, if I'm not mistaken, for where they come to. But I would say the number one thing is that she should actually email me so I can introduce you to John Warner. I think he, he's got his whole focus is on this. There's also Aging, now that I think about it, Aging 2.0 mm-hmm. has an annual conference. And Aging 2.0 is entrepreneurs of all ages who want to create products and services for uh, an older market. And so I would look at, is there an Aging 2.0 chapter close to where you live? Because there are, I think, 80 uh, Aging 2.0 chapters around the world. Great. And I also want to remind people, and actually uh, Jan from um, Iowa commented that the handout that you know, that is on the event page of resources is just really, really helpful. I don't know if all the resources you've just mentioned are on that, but I want to just encourage people, if you go to the event page, you can download the resource list that that Chip um, has made available, and it's, it's a real comprehensive, nice list. Okay, a couple more things real quickly. So Kathy from North Carolina says, I do know that I have valuable and useful experience. However, as a retiree, I struggle to find ways to use it. Even though I live in a vibrant metropolitan area with lots of young people in tech, whatever happened to those ideas I've heard over the years about matching retirees with volunteer or stipend-paid opportunities that feel productive from both sides? There's a growing number of technology platforms that are about mutual mentorship between people of different ages. One is called Mentor Cloud, but Mentor Cloud is specific to organizations where you could, an older and a younger person could mentor each other within an organization. So it's not sort of the general public. But I think one of the things to look at is are both are there technology platforms that are actually creating opportunities for people across ages to, to learn from each other. And then within your own community, are there organizations like SCORE, which is the, you know, the, the, the organization of retired executives or retired business people who actually provide advice and guidance to younger business people? Um, are, are there other organizations like that? There's Encore.org has the Encore Fellows Program, which is basically people, you know, people older who want to give back often to social enterprises or nonprofits. And, you know, I, I think what we're going to start to see is Peter Drucker, who I talked about already on this show, is the one who actually coined the term knowledge worker back in 1959, mm-hmm. talking about the future of the business world is going to be defined by knowledge workers. And in fact, today, seven of the ten most valuable companies in the world are tech companies. I think it's time for us to retire the term knowledge worker and replace it with wisdom worker. And you know, because what's what's really scarce today is not knowledge. All of that's in our little eyes from Google. But in fact, what's scarce is the wisdom of people who have experience that they've been able to turn into uh, insight. And I think what we're going to see is a future where companies are going to actually look at how are they hiring wisdom workers. Just like 60 mm-hmm. years ago, they started to think about how do you hire technology workers. And so this is a way, a way, I mean, this is not very relevant to most of us because I think we're talking about over the next 20 or 30 years you'll see this trend. But the key is to find out who are the organizations or what, what cities are starting to focus on this 
because I've, it, it is something I've been asked to give lots of speeches on. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to go in a moment, though, because I call it the bottom of the hour I'm going to prepare for. Well, I am so thankful. There were a couple other questions that I won't and comments that I'm not able to include. And any final, I have so many more questions to, to ask you, too, but um, <laughs> maybe we can have you come back again another time. Any final takeaways? you want to let people know how they can get your blog, how, you know, just sure. any other things about that, and then any final takeaway, and then we'll let you go to your next. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can learn more about me at chipconley.com and more about the Modern Elder Academy at modernelderacademy.org or .com. They both go to the same site. The Wisdom Well Daily Blog, it's a free blog that just emailed to you, but it's also you can find it on the Modern Elder Academy website. So you can just look for Wisdom Well and my name attached to that, and you can find it on the Modern Elder Academy site. You can also find on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active in almost every day, putting an article up on LinkedIn, usually from my blog. And then also for those who just want to, are curious about the Modern Elder Academy, there's a Modern Elder Academy Facebook group. It's quite robust. There's about 2,800 people on it. It's a private group, so you have, you have to answer a couple questions to be let in. But it's, you know, every, you know we, we definitely like an inclusive group. And it's a really great group of people who are actually sharing articles and thoughts around how to shift our mindset to a positive perspective on aging. So that's, that's it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your wisdom and with the handouts also sharing your, you know, wisdom of resources. And I will probably be in touch and see if we can find another time to continue the conversation. So thank you so much. And I hope that things ease up and you'll be able to reopen the the academy. Uh, the Modern Elder Academy, and uh, maybe some people on the call will end up deciding they want to be able to go go there. <laughs> so okay. thank you all so right. much again, Chip, thank for you. being with all us, right. and take care, everybody. Thanks for all everybody Bye-bye. being here. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.